0: Welcome to the Global Governance Podcast, where we explore the future of governance. Each episode will look at a different global issue and how governance plays a key role in its solution. From climate change to gender equality, from corruption to peace and security, we invite experts to explore a thought-provoking game of what if and why not, positing a world in much closer international cooperation. Michael Mandelbaum is the Christian Hester Professor of American Foreign Policy at the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, DC, and is also the director of the American Foreign Policy Program there. He has held teaching posts at Harvard and Columbia Universities and at the United States Naval Academy. He serves on the board of advisors of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy Book published in 2022, is titled The Four Ages of American Policy, Weak Power, Great Power, Superpower, Hyperpower. Professor Mantelbaum is moreover the author or co-author of numerous articles and of 13 books. Michael, we're delighted to have you as our guest for today's Global Governance Forum podcast. Thank you very much for making the time to, to talk to us. To get the discussion started, I wanted to go back to a very thoughtful, very insightful piece that you wrote in the late late 1990s titled Is Major War Obsolete? Incidentally, it's an article that I used myself repeatedly in some of the presentations I, I made on the same subject around that time and later on. You persuaded me by the ideas that in a fully independent world, the costs of major conflict had risen substantially. And that in any case, war was no longer perceived as a a noble enterprise, as a legitimate expression of one's love for for country and so on. In fact, perhaps it's fair to say that war increasingly was perceived as a criminal enterprise. Um, I think that notwithstanding the fact that many of the arguments that you put forward at that time remain valid. Here we are in 2022, we're in the middle of a devastating war in the Ukraine and many see a possible future conflict between the U.S. and China as a distinct possibility. So for the benefit of our uh, listeners, share with us briefly your thinking about war at the turn of the last century. And how you would answer that question today? I refer is major war obsolete?
1: Well, thank you, Augusto. It's it's a pleasure to be with you and your listeners. And the question you pose could not be more important. Um, to uh, give some context of uh, the the original article is major war obsolete? Um, I. Let me turn to uh, my new book that you were kind enough to mention uh, the, the, the Four Ages of American Foreign Policy: Weak Power, Great Power, Superpower, Hyperpower. The article to which you referred was written during the period in which America was what I call the world's hyperpower, it bestrode the world like a colossus it had no serious challengers and faced no major security threats. And it was in that context that I argued that major war had become obsolete. Now, uh, in technical terms, the war in Ukraine is consistent with that argument, because I define major war as a war between and among great powers. And United States, a great power, is not directly at war with Russia, although the United States and, of course, NATO are assisting Ukraine. But having made that technical point, there's no doubt that the world looks different. Uh, the status of war looks different. Uh, and uh, that is because the era of the American hyperpower has ended. And by my reckoning in uh, my new book. It, It ended in 2015. Why did it end? Well, for that, I go back to my previous book, The Rise and Fall of Peace on Earth. There I describe the peaceful world that emerged from the Cold War, but argue that that unprecedentedly peaceful world came to an end because three countries decided to challenge the political status quo in their regions, including by force Russia in Europe, China in East Asia, and Iran in the Middle East. As long as these countries pursue revisionist policies, as long as they try to upend the status quo and obtain more power and territory for themselves, The kind of peace that I described in the wake of the Cold War does not obtain. And in The Rise and Fall of Peace on Earth, I attempt to explain why the policies of of these three countries changed, why they became more bellicose and aggressive. It's a complicated story in each case. But uh, a common feature of these three countries is that each of them has a government that is autocratic, that does not have the kind of legitimacy that democracy confers. Uh, China and Russia have depended for such legitimacy as Mr. Putin in Russia and the Communist Party in China have on economic growth. But Russian economic growth has all but stopped. And this was true even before the attack of February 24th, 2022 on Ukraine. And China's economic prospects have become dimmer. The double-digit annual economic growth that the Communist Party was able to deliver for three decades is now no longer possible. So to fill the legitimacy gap, I argue... These two regimes undertook policies of aggressive nationalism to divert their populations from their relative economic failures and to present themselves as defending the nation against predatory enemies, in both cases, the United States. And, of course, Iran, being an ideological power, has had that approach to foreign policy since the Iranian Revolution of 1979. So to sum up, I think it is true that major war is not quite as obsolete as it was when I wrote the article to which you refer in the 1990s. I take the major reason for that to be the domestic regimes of these three countries, which for different reasons, but also for common reasons, are pursuing aggressive policies, from which it follows that the solidification of peace requires regime change in all three countries. But unfortunately, the rest of the world, the world that believes in peace, that believes in effective global governance, does not have the means to change these regimes. We can deter them, and that is what NATO is doing in Europe, and what the United States and its allies are attempting to do toward Iran and the Middle East and China and East Asia. But we cannot have the kind of world we would really like as long, I believe, as those regimes are in power.
0: Thank you. Thank you for those very clarifying remarks, uh, Michael. Um, In 2020, uh, we commemorated the 75th anniversary of the adoption of the UN Charter. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of soul-searching about the dysfunctionalities of the global order that came out of San Francisco in 1945. As you know, the UN Charter has remained frozen in time and contributed in no small measure to the ineffectiveness of of the organization. Even if... um, you know, we celebrate, and that was the case in 2020, we did celebrate, you know, some of the undeniable achievements of the UN. I'm thinking decolonization. I'm thinking a much stronger legal framework for human rights. Uh, you know, good work done over the decades by some of the specialized agencies. Uh, I'm thinking in particular, the elimination of smallpox in the in the 1980s, uh, which was spearheaded by the World Health Organization. Even if you give credit to the UN for all these achievements, there is a concern that uh, at a time when we need to strengthen international cooperation to address major global challenges such as climate change, the UN, perhaps by design, is not up to the task. Do you share this pessimism? Uh, Might there be a moment uh, when the international community revisits a rethinking of our global order in a way that we attempted to do in 1945 and that perhaps to some extent the European Union in recent decades um, has been doing, although in a, in a regional context.
1: Another uh, extremely important question, and uh, I can begin my answer by going back again to my new book, Uh, The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy, I spend quite a bit of time discussing Woodrow Wilson's effort to establish the League of Nations after World War I. It was, of course, established but without American participation. And incidentally, uh, my analysis does not conclude that if the United States had joined, that could have prevented World War II. But that's an historical question. Uh, The the League of Nations was the forerunner of the United Nations. It was the first effort to establish uh, an international organization that would foster deep cooperation, almost a world government. But it had a problem that the United Nations has, and that is inevitable in the world of today, and that is that its member states wish to retain their sovereign prerogatives. So uh, the existence of national sovereignty limits what an international organization can hope to achieve. Nations wish to be independent, wish to make their own decisions, and that will be true for as far and into the future as we can see. Therefore, it seems to me that uh, an appropriate verdict on the United Nations after 75 years is the one that the, uh, the British... Lexicographer and writer of the 18th century, Samuel Johnson, returned on a dancing bear. He said, The wonder, he said, It is not done well, but you are surprised that it is done at all. Given the nature of international politics, it is in many ways impressive what the United Nations and other international organizations have managed to achieve. Now, there is a case that the demand for international cooperation in our increasingly interdependent world exceeds the supply of it. And that raises the question of how we can get more international cooperation. Uh, My own view on this goes back to a point that I made previously. Um, The countries that are best able and most inclined to cooperate are democracies for all kinds of reasons. And of course, the international organization with the closest cooperation is the European Union, which is an organization of democracies. Therefore, the further democracy spreads, I believe, the better will be the prospects for closer international cooperation and the stronger and more effective will be organizations such as the United Nations and other international organizations. Unfortunately, as I describe in the fourth section of uh, the four ages of American foreign policy, it really isn't easy, and in some cases it isn't possible, to foster democracy from the outside. The United Nations, other international organizations, and the world in general would be far better off if Russia and China were democracies. But unfortunately, we lack the means to accomplish that. And so we cannot say when, if ever, those countries will become democracies and make greater and more willing contributions to the kind of international cooperation that the 21st century needs.
0: Yes, I, I, I think I would agree with you, Michael. Let me let me sort of go back a little bit to something that you said in response to my first question when you were talking about Russia, Iran, and and China uh, at the turn of the at sort of the end of the Cold War. Um, you have written that you oppose NATO expansion because, I quote, it violated the letter and the spirit of that order and placed it in jeopardy. Um, I assume it is the order that came out of the end of the Cold War. Could you perhaps elaborate more on, on what you meant and in which ways was NATO expansion seen by you as as uh, harmful or maybe not beneficial? And in this context, of course, I have to ask you, are you surprised that traditionally neutral countries like Sweden and Finland now see NATO membership as an important element of their future security?
1: Yes, um, another very good question. I should say at the outset that we are in a different world now than we were in when NATO was initially expanded in the mid-1990s. Uh so I do not oppose the expansion of NATO now. Uh I was a little surprised that Finland and Sweden decided to apply for membership, but I think that shows you just how seriously they take uh the Russian aggression in Ukraine. This was brought about and could only have been brought about by Mr. Putin. Um the uh I should also say that um I I uh, I do I do not not only do I not oppose helping Ukraine resist Russia I'm very much in favor of it and I do not believe for a moment that Mr Putin's rationale for the war, among among other, among the component parts of which was that uh, Ukraine was about to join NATO and NATO was seeking to destroy Russia, is remotely plausible. I don't think it's true. I don't even believe he believes that he's just looking for a pretext to uh, justify the war to the Russian public. But I do believe that the expansion of NATO in the mid-1990s had something to do with this war, contributed to the trends that culminated in this war. I was against it in the mid-1990s because uh, various Western leaders had promised first Mr. Gorbachev and then Mr. Yeltsin that NATO would not expand eastward. Uh, I was against it because we had uh, what I describe as a common security order, the best European security order we have ever had that had emerged from the Cold War and that I described in the four ages of American foreign policy, which brought greater security to the continent than ever before, and that had as one of its cardinal principles that all changes in security arrangements would have to be acceptable to everyone. This was done without Russian participation and against Russian wishes. I was opposed to NATO expansion as it was practiced as well because uh, the Russians were told that they would never be allowed to join, which I thought was uh, a mistake. I think we should have had an all-European security order, and I hope someday we can have one, although not with Putin in charge in Russia. What I feared at the time and what many who opposed NATO expansion feared at the time was that this would cause a backlash in Russia, would turn Russian opinion against the West, against NATO, against the United States, and would set Russia off onto a different path in foreign policy than the one that it had followed since the collapse of the Soviet Union. The path that it had followed since the end of the Soviet Union was a pro-Western one, and it also uh, was a path that sought to build a democracy under the leadership of Boris Yeltsin, who was at least well inclined to democracy. I and others feared that NATO expansion would interfere with, perhaps end all that, and indeed it did. It made Russia reflexively anti-Western, and that paved the way for Mr. Putin's foreign policy. He has uh, He has bolstered his standing with the Russian people by acts of aggression uh, against Georgia and against Ukraine, his annexation of Crimea, his occupation of parts of the Donbass, the eastern part of Ukraine in 2014, and now his full-scale assault on Ukraine in February 2022. And he has done so by claiming that he was defending Russia against ongoing Western aggression. That is not true, but I believe that NATO expansion made it far easier than it would otherwise have been to sell that proposition to the Russian people, who are his principal constituency. So uh, I believe that NATO expansion through many intermediate steps helped to contribute unintentionally, entirely, but did help to contribute to Russian aggression in Ukraine.
0: And yet, Michael, if I could just ask a subsidiary question, um, there seems to be no sort of conceivable strategic benefit for for Russia as a result of this this war in the Ukraine, no? I mean, just look at what is happening. It's a protracted conflict, which is going to be very difficult to win in military terms. And along the way, the Russian economy is literally being destroyed by the sanctions.
1: What is there for him to gain? I believe that uh, this war has not gone at all as Mr. Putin had planned. He thought that he would be able to seize all of Ukraine, in a few days with little bloodshed, relatively uh, costlessly, that the elected Ukrainian government would flee, and that Russia could then annex Ukraine, which would fulfill his ambition to restore as much of the old Soviet Union as possible, to become the most powerful country in Europe, and to present himself to the Russian people as the restorer of Russian greatness. Had the war gone as he believed and intended, he could plausibly have accomplished those goals. But it didn't go that way. So why is he persistent? Well, I believe he's persisting because to admit failure and to, and to withdraw would be humiliating for Russia and especially for him. And my supposition, although I do not have any direct evidence for this, is that Putin believes, and he may conceivably conceivably be right if he does believe it, that he could not remain in power if he had suffered a humiliating defeat in Ukraine. Therefore, he's hanging on and trying to gain something at great cost to Russia and at even greater cost to the Ukrainian people that is a tragedy a disaster and a crime but i believe at least as far as i can tell that that is his calculation
0: interesting i think i would tend to agree with you um <clears throat> let's shift gears a little bit and uh... I want us to talk a little bit about the our unraveling nuclear order. Um, in the middle of the Cold War in 1968, the United States and the Soviet Union negotiated the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and eventually persuaded, you know, many other sovereign states to sign it and promise not to acquire such weapons for themselves. In recent years, however, we have seen sort of the imploding or unraveling of of the nuclear order that maintained the peace between the nuclear states during many decades. We can see today steps taken in the opposite direction. For example, in the Middle East, uh, it's very well known that Iran has recently made considerable progress with uh, uranium enrichment uh, following the collapse of the Iran nuclear deal negotiated by the Obama administration. In this regard, you have written very sensibly the greater the number of countries that have them, that is, nuclear weapons, the greater will be the likelihood that one or many nuclear shots will be fired, anger causing untold death and destruction. Unquote. Can you comment on the future of nuclear proliferation and how might we return to the negotiating table?
1: Well, that's an urgent problem. Uh, I, should, I, I, I want to begin my answer by saying, and this is a point I make in the third part of um, the four ages of American foreign policy, that while the nonproliferation treaty of 1968 was extremely important, and it's important to keep it in force insofar as we can, Just as important in restricting the spread of nuclear weapons was the American alliance system. Many countries that could have acquired nuclear weapons and that could acquire them decided not to do so because they believed that they were adequately protected by the American nuclear shield if and as other countries' confidence in American nuclear deterrence and the American nuclear shield begins to waver, they will become more interested in nuclear proliferation. Uh, That, for example, is one of the reasons to try to prevent China from seizing Taiwan. There are many reasons, but one reason is that in the aftermath of a communist Chinese seizure of now democratic Taiwan, virtually every country in East Asia will have its confidence in American protection shattered and will therefore be highly likely to move to its own nuclear weapons. We will see, I believe, in that eventuality, Japanese nuclear weapons, despite Japan's aversion. To nuclear weapons as a result of being the only country to have suffered nuclear attacks. We'll see North, we'll see South Korean nuclear weapons to match the North Korean nuclear ones. Uh, We'll see nuclear weapons spreading even to smaller countries, countries that we don't normally think of as having nuclear aspirations. Now, the most pressing threat today is from Iran, which is moving. Uh, toward having nuclear weapons. Uh, unfortunately, in my judgment, the so called JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that was signed in 2015 with Iran, was not, even when it was in force, adequate to keep Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons. In no small part because it had sunset provisions. After a number of years, its provisions provisions lapped and lapsed, or were scheduled to lapse, and Iran would have been free to obtain nuclear weapons. And given Iran's determination to dominate the Middle East and spread its ideology, I think it was highly likely that sooner or later, without much more robust resistance, Iran would obtain nuclear weapons. If Iran does obtain nuclear weapons, then I think you will see what is sometimes called a nuclear cascade in the Middle East. Certainly, Saudi Arabia will want nuclear weapons. I believe that Egypt will exert itself to get them. Uh, I don't know what Iran will do. It's a complicated system there. Even some of the smaller Gulf countries are rich enough to buy a nuclear weapon, for example, from Pakistan. So we will see the nuclear nuclearization of the Middle East, and that will be very unstable because the conditions that made nuclear stability possible between the two nuclear superpowers during the Cold War, that is the United States and the Soviet Union, will not be present. Uh, the, the, The countries that get nuclear weapons will not have big enough nuclear weapons to be able to absorb an initial strike. Their policies will be what has sometimes been called uh, "use it, uh, use it or lose it." There will be all of the nuclear weapons in the Middle East will be on hair trigger alert. Moreover, uh, once the Middle East is nuclearized, that automatically threatens Europe because the Iranians will be able to reach Europe with only modest advances in their um, in their uh, missile program. So it calls into question the non-nuclear policies of uh, European countries, and it may even have a demonstration effect causing nuclear proliferation in East Asia, even absent a Chinese takeover of Taiwan. So in sum, I think that the Iranian determination to get nuclear weapons is very dangerous, not only for the Middle East. But for the whole world, and I hope that the whole world will find a way to resist the Iranian nuclear weapons. And when I say resist, I mean even to the extent, if necessary, one hopes it doesn't come to this, but even to the extent of using force against that nuclear weapons program.
0: Yeah, it is very, uh, very perturbing. Um, And the outlook on this front is, is, is very worrying. Um, but, um, Michael, um, since you are such a prolific uh, thinker and you have straddled so many different uh, fields, I, I feel that it is important that we, we move on. And I wanted to ask you something about climate change. You know, I had the good fortune of attending uh, about a month ago in Sweden, the Stockholm Plus 50 conference to commemorate the 1972 United Nations Conference on the Human Environment. Um the idea was to take stock um, uh, after 50 years of global environmental action, or maybe I should say lack of action. And to many of the people participating in this conference, that the 2015 Paris Agreement is simply not working. Um, I think you know the flaws are, are well known. Voluntary emission commitments, which are not sufficient to prevent the The temperature rise um, that scientists have already told us, you know, would take us into the danger zone. Um, And, you know, you know that with the possible exception of 2020, because of COVID, you know, emissions have continued to rise, you know, steadily since since 2015. Um, Now you hear countries talking about energy security and, you know, meaning, that there is talk of bringing back into production uh, previously mothballed coal capacity. Um, This is perhaps understandable, but it certainly goes against the spirit of of the Paris Agreement. More recently, in the United States, the Supreme Court has curtailed the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate emissions at a time when the scientific evidence is very much uh, on the side of suggesting that... uh, Climate change is going to have a calamitous impact on the world. Uh, Is there a way out of this mess? Or, as was put by one speaker in Stockholm, will meaningful action perhaps only be prompted by the destruction and suffering brought by escalating environmental breakdown?
1: Uh, Again, another urgent question. Let me make two points about climate change. Uh, first, it has sometimes been called the international problem or the international collective goods problem from hell, uh, because it, it it is very difficult to get concerted action because the publics in all the countries of the world are asked to take action and make some sacrifices, maybe not great sacrifices, but some economic sacrifices in the present in order to prevent harms that they can't see, that are not happening to them at the moment and may not happen until long after they're gone. Uh, And that's a pretty tough sell. Uh, So that's the reason that climate change was always going to be difficult to address. Now, my second point is that it seems to me that the solution and the only solution to the problem of climate change is technology. The reason for this is that fossil fuels are integral, that is greenhouse gas causing fossil fuels are integral and have been for almost two centuries to the rise in human standards of living, which has been perhaps the greatest achievement in the last two centuries, and in which everyone wishes to participate, both those who live in rich countries, but especially those who live in poor countries. They are not going to give up fossil fuels unless and until there are non-polluting substitute sources of energy that can sustain their current standards of living and can contribute to economic growth and a rise in those standards of living. Uh, I was very impressed by Bill Gates' recent book on climate change because he goes through all the uses of energy and shows how distant we are from having, on a large scale, non-polluting sources of energy to uh, satisfy those needs. We're very far away from having the technology that we need. Uh, therefore, it seems to me uh, that a, a three-pronged approach is necessary, certainly in the United States. And incidentally. Uh, It's not happening at the moment. Even the current administration, which is committed to trying to do something about climate change, is not doing uh, any of the three things that I think are necessary. First, I think we need a carbon tax. We need to put a price on carbon, which will give people incentives to use less of it. It will lead to conservation and innovation. On the old principle that if you want less of something, tax it. Well, we want less of greenhouse gases and we ought to be taxing them. That tends to be a heavy lift politically, in the United States at least. But if it's really the case that climate change threatens the future of the planet, then politicians ought to be willing to do what is necessary and expend the political capital that is necessary to take one of the most important steps to cope with it. The second important step is to invest far more in research and development on energy technology. Uh, we're, we, we need to invest, and this is a point Bill Gates makes, some multiple of what we're investing now, precisely because it is technology, and I believe technology alone, that will save us, that will give us the possibility of mitigating whatever the effects of global warming are going to be. And of course, we don't know what those effects are. They may not be so severe that the world cannot adapt to them, but they might be more severe. We simply don't know. And so it's important to take out insurance. The third approach, the third prong of the approach has to do with one particular technology. The major source of greenhouse gas is electricity generation. And we do have a non-polluting way of generating electricity, and that's nuclear power. But in the United States and in parts of Europe, we've all but given up on it. Now, there are good reasons for that. There are good reasons to be wary of nuclear power. But my sense is, if we're really going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we're going to have to rely more on nuclear-generated power. That means investing more in making it cheaper and safer. But if we're not doing that, we're not taking one of the obvious steps to cope with climate change.
0: Thank you for that very cogent reply and analysis. Um, I wanted to go back to to one of your books, uh, The Rise and Fall of Peace on Earth. You have spent the last several decades thinking about war and peace, and much of your writing is illumined by a deep knowledge of history and the lessons that one may glean of relevance to our understanding of, you know, the challenges that we face today. And in this respect, going back again to the spirit of that article uh, that you wrote 20 years ago on the obsolescence of of war, major war, would you agree that in a kind of a long-term perspective, world peace is likely inevitable? And that the question that remains is how we get there, uh, by conscious choice and prevention, or perhaps more likely prodded by great human suffering and dislocation.
1: Yes, well, another uh, crucial question. It seems to me, looking back on the scope and the arc of history, that the world has become more peaceful, and there are studies that, uh, that show that. Stephen Pinker, the psychologist... Has uh, amassed a lot of data to show that violent deaths per capita are less common now than they were in the past. Less common uh, because uh, the, the 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 world population is much greater, and uh, and the uh, the Israeli historian Azar Gat G A T has also written to this effect and and written some very persuasive, at least to me, books. The best evidence of this is the fact that the countries that for much of history were the most warlike, the major powers of Western Europe, Germany, France, and Great Britain, are now entirely peaceful. And there are reasons for that. There are trends in the world that tend to make countries more inclined to peace and less inclined to war. Unfortunately, those trends are not powerful enough to make the world entirely peaceful, at least not yet. They're not universal. Um, And uh, as as I've said, I think that the reason they're not universal, or one of the main reasons and one of the great obstacles to global peace, to a more peaceful world, is the autocratic nature of regimes, which from their point of view have an interest in war. War has been very good to Mr. Putin until Ukraine, so it's not surprising that he uh, employs it. Uh, So we come back to the question of regime change, but uh, you raise the question of whether if we do proceed toward peace, it will be because countries and individuals learn or because we have wars that are so terrible that there seems to be no alternative to peace. One certainly hopes that the first is true, but historically, the second has been true. It was the horrors of World War II, more than anything else, I believe, that made Western Europe peaceful. So let us hope that on the path to peace, the world doesn't have to go through World War III.
0: Indeed, let's, let's hope that that is, that is the case. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for, for such an interesting, uh, broad-ranging, insightful podcast. I want us to conclude by asking a question that sometimes I have asked to other, other guests in our, in our podcast series. Among the hundreds of thousands of followers of the Global Governance Forum on social media platforms, we have a large contingent of young people all over the world who are energized and concerned about the lack of meaningful action to address global problems like climate change, like nuclear proliferation, and some of the other ones that we have discussed today. Can you share with them some words of encouragement so that they, ca- they take up the initiative and lead the way to a better world?
1: Well, I think... Uh, as this podcast has demonstrated, and as I am sure your other podcasts demonstrate, the world is not short of serious problems to be solved. So there's plenty of work to do in making the world a better place, and indeed, in keeping it from becoming a worse place. Uh, Anyone who is interested in a meaningful and interesting career will find many opportunities in dealing with these problems. Uh, I would add one uh, additional note, and that is that the more you know about history, uh, about economics, about geology, about physics, the better educated you are, the the richer your intellectual toolkit, the, the better you will be able to make a contribution to solving these problems. But it's obvious that these problems are enormously important. They are deeply rooted. They will not be eradicated overnight. So anyone thinking about a career can certainly be confident that a career in international relations, international organization, in foreign policy, in trying to make a contribution to dealing effectively with this problem that such a career uh, will not be a short one.
0: Thank you for listening to the Global Governance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. To learn more, please visit globalgovernanceforum.org and join the conversation.